today we're back in First Corinthians. We're in, in doing a new chapter, chapter six, and this is uh, we're covering verses one through six, where Paul is rebuking people for suing each other over trivial matters, and it shows a lack of understanding of the gospel, the nature of the church, and what's important and what isn't. One one of the things, just to tell you up front, there's some difficulties in in the Greek in some of these verses, one in particular, and I'll bring that out and hopefully explain it to you. But the key issue is this, status. The Lord didn't bring people into the church so that we can start claiming to have superior status, religious status versus others, but we are to be grateful for what God has done in our life. Let's begin with prayer, and then we'll get into the passages. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for caring for us. We pray for Pastor Eric as he's uh, had surgery and needs prayer as he heals up. Thank you that the surgery went well. We do pray for our pastor that he'd get uh, fully restored to his mobility. And thank you, Lord, that we have a chance to learn from you as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we are in verse 1 through 6, and let me start with verse 1 here. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, you notice from the title of the slide, the, uh, the nuance of the Greek is interesting because the very first word is dare. So some scholars say, how dare you? How dare you? And if we're going to put this in the context of what we learned about the gospel and about the problems in Corinth, the attitudes of superiority, one Christian versus another, how that's a bad idea. So here is a grievance, and one uh, Christian is taking another one within the church to a secular court filing a lawsuit. And Paul says, how dare you? So what do we know about this from the context? From the context, God is the one who judges the world, but the church is to judge those inside in the case of church discipline. So what we have, I think, for us to interpret and understand passages like this is that as church history has gone on for a couple thousand years, Christendom developed. Some nations were declared to be Christian and in, in history ruled by the church. If you just think about it, it's so hard for people to understand what's being said and how to apply it because let's just go back to when they were having religious wars. And so one nation is declared to be Christian in church history and the church is in charge of the secular and the religious. And so any kind of lawsuit would be in the church because they were uh, melded together. But that's not what was going on in Corinth. The church were those who believed the gospel, were redeemed, 
removed from the world, have a relationship with God, and love the Lord and one another, supposedly, and are attached to the head, Jesus Christ. The world was hostile to the gospel. There was no Christendom. And the demarcation between the church and the unrighteous in the world was a, was a clear thing. And Paul, when he went before secular authorities, it had to do with riots that started and appealing as a Roman citizen so that he could end up in Rome where he was going to preach the gospel. The church was not the world. So this grievance, the word grievance, pragma in the Greek, means a lawsuit in this context. So let me make a statement that I, that I wrote down in my notes about this. The, the topic is still judging. The Corinthians have their categories wrong. They are to judge those inside the church as needed. God will judge those who are outside uh, in the world. They are not resolving, excuse me, they are not resolving their internal disputes, but bringing them to the world to be adjudicated. Paul contrasts the unrighteous, adikos, that's the Greek, Greek word for unrighteous, with the saints, hagios, saints, holy. The saints have legal cases against each other and went to the unrighteous judge in the world to judge the cases. This is ironic. Thus, Paul says, how dare you? How dare you? So the unrighteous know how to solve the problems that you can't solve yourself. And we'll see in a bit that he calls these things trivial. As usual, their status vis-a-vis one another is the issue. Their spiritual status. So... Paul takes that and applies it. So you have to admit the world is unrighteous. You have to admit the world is hostile to the gospel. And you have a problem because you think somebody in the church treated you wrong, so you're going to have the world solve it for you. So he rebukes them. Uh, I want to cite a scholar, Dr. Paul Gardner, who says this. Recalling his opening remarks, Paul again calls the Christians saints. Thus, even as the Corinthians are bragging about their human status, says Gardner, and speaking of their wisdom, power, and many gifts, Paul reminds them of the only status that truly matters, their standing before God. The fact that he has in mind their status by referring to them as saints Uh, that speaks against their resorting to judgment to those who have no such status. They're going to be judges of the world. Paul's eschatology frames his argument. We'll see this. Well, some of the questions, by the way, you wouldn't believe how many hours I put in looking at how much has been written for, for about these things. What does it mean? This, that, and the other thing comes up. I want to stay on course here. We have the time for a sermon, and let's learn what the key points are, and I'll refer somewhat to some of these other issues. Let's go to verse 2. 
Point of status. Who's important? Who is it? Who's wrong? Is this important? What's the difference between the world and the church? That's what we need to learn. Now let's look at verse 2. Do you not know? Remember that's used 10 times in 1 Corinthians, that phrase. Do you not know the saints will judge the world? Paul says, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And that's an interesting word, trivial, or, or inconsequential, or insignificant. Are you incompetent? Now, why would you get so worked up over a trivial case that you go file a lawsuit with the world? Well, because the thing that mattered the most to them is status. I'm important. Don't you know how important I am? You made me wronged, and I, I look bad. I got to file a suit. Now, listen, um, that's the key problem. I'm a Paul, I'm a Peter. I'm of Apollos, and the, the one person with one gift, when we get to verse 12, says, I have no need of you. You're, I don't need you. I have what it takes here. And so the lesson that we have to learn is that we need Christ more than anything, and we need one another. Flawed as we may be, we need one another all those who are joined to the head, part of the body, are there by God's doing. And we need each other. And we'll, we'll see more as we go on. Now, what about the saints will judge the world? Well, this is talking about in the end, in end times, eschatology, after the return of Christ. And you can spend a lot of time looking up all the references, including and the pseudepigrapha and the apocrypha, but uh, I don't have time to do all that. I look at some of it. We'll just stick with what we know from Scripture. But at Daniel 7:22 is a reference. I'll read it to you. Until the Ancient of Days arrived, and a judgment was given in favor of the Holy Ones of the Most High, for the time had come, and the Holy Ones took possession of the kingdom. So probably he's referring to something like that or future, future ruling with Christ, Revelation 12, 20 and verse 4. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I saw, saw the people who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of God's word who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Messiah for a thousand years. So during the millennium, there will be people reigning with Christ. So they knew this. Paul had been there for 18 months. He taught them, but it wasn't sinking in. Excuse me. So this is a greater to lesser argument. What's the greater in the eschaton, after the resurrection, you'll be part of the judging process if you're indeed saints. What's the lesser? Somebody 
did me wrong, and I'm going to get my money's worth, or I'm going to get my vindication. And I'll let the secular people decide that. As I said, in their time, there was a church that Jews, the Greeks, the Church of God. There wasn't Christendom. In our day, this is difficult because it's hard to figure out what's the church and what's the world. So the, the facts still stand, and God knows who the church is. God knows those who, who are his, and all those who know Christ and sins are forgiven, need to, we need to take this to heart by God's grace. It says in 2 Timothy 2.12, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. So that word there, trivial, let me talk about that. Trifling, uh, insignificant. It's sort of a, the word micros only made into a superlative. Exceedingly small. Exceedingly small. And um, the greater would be our status as people of God. Our sins are forgiven. We're part of the eternal kingdom. We are, we are going to reign with him. That's the greater. The, the lesser is going to be these disputes. Now, there's a passage that we'll get to the next time I'm in First Corinthians 6 that says it's better to be wrong than to bring dishonor to the gospel and the church. So, um, again, let me talk about status. I'm so glad that there are some great scholarly materials that are now available that see this issue. It is the key issue. You find it throughout Luke. Who's the greatest? You see it in rebuke of the religious leaders of Israel. They wore long robes. They loved greetings. They wanted religious status. Who's important? Who isn't? Who's greater? Who's lesser? Who's the great person of God? Who's more pious? Who prayed the longest? We like to come up with these categories, but only God knows the heart, and only he is the adequate judge. And we should be rejoicing that our sins are forgiven. Now, Dr. Gardner says this, as has been noted, status in the Corinthian pagan society was based upon wealth, power, wisdom, and patronage. The courts were often biased toward these people. It would not be surprising to find that converts used to getting their way in society because of this status should try to achieve their goals in a similar way, says Gardner, within the community of the church. Then I have some ellipses, because it was a long quote. Then continuing, such an abuse of power and community status by richer Christians, however, would simply add to Paul's horror of what was going on. Paul's concern is that they should know better. Do you not know? Their status now has a different foundation. They have a status in Christ Jesus. And I say amen. That's biblical. That's what Dr. Gardner's pointing to. Where the least 
among people have the same status as all others who enjoy covenantal participation in him with his people. Fancy way of saying, in Christ, you have the status and honor you need. And it's very likely, given everything else we know about Corinth, we know about how they handle the Lord's Supper, the wealthy have their own meals, they have the inner circle, the others are out on the fringes having something less. I'm important, you're not important. Who is it, even in our society, uh, when it comes to such things as libel, losses, whatever, who is it that we see in the newspaper that are suing each other? The people that are the celebrities, the wealthy, the important, and what ordinary folks go about doing, trying to survive, go about life, trying to keep a job, trying to pay, pay your bills. No, I'm not here to tell people that they can't have lawsuits in the secular world, but this is Paul saying to that particular church and to all of us, that what matters more than anything else is who God is, what he's done for us, what it means to be in Christ and our eternal relationship with him. And if some other Christian does me harm or you harm, that's not good, but it's not going to take away our hope, our joy, and the fact that we will one day reign with him. I'm telling you, that's hard to internalize in the sense of, I know that's true, because no one really likes to be mistreated. And I am obligated to point out, this is scripture, we can all learn from it. Remember 1 Corinthians 4 or 5 that we covered before. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart that each one will receive his commendation from God? So we need to lay aside status rivalry, particularly in these mundane or trivial matters. I would apply it also this way. Not everything would cause someone to go down and file a lawsuit, but um, it's not right to reject people we've known and loved because something they said or did bothered me. That's very common for all of us. And the more we believe the promises of God, the more we can be patient with one another. Because this undergirds everything. Part of the family of God is a status that none of us deserve. Now let's go to verse 3. Do you not know, there it is again, one of those ten times, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertain to this life? Another greater to lesser argument. Now, if you want to spend many hours and many, many more hours, you can read the intertestamental literature about angels. 
one Enoch, two Enoch, which is apocryphal. And how does this work? And what is it going to look like? Evidently, they knew something about this that Paul talked about. We don't need to figure out the details of how that'll work. Let me tell you something that's helped me. When people want to know details about things that'll happen during the millennium that aren't very clear in the scripture, you could call this a cop-out, but I don't think it is. I say, I'm not too worried about getting it wrong during the millennium because Jesus will be here and we can ask him. All right? I believe there will be a millennium. But how angels and humans, and whether they're good angels or bad ones, all of that's discussed. If it's during the millennium, Jesus will be here. He's God, the Son. He'll get it right. For the purpose of understanding this, we need to look at the greater the lesser. So if during the eschaton, in the future, we'll have various responsibilities those who trust Christ after the resurrection and will be trusted for matters that would be way beyond anything we can think of now, then, by implication, can I live with the brothers and sisters in Christ God put me with and give grace and forgiveness to them and back and forth with each other? Can I even, as we'll get to later in the next bunch of verses, um, be wrong if that's what it comes to rather than to harm the body of Christ? That's something that we can take home. They expected the secular courts to adjudicate the biotikos. That's the word for pertaining to this life. That'll... Hold on to that word. I have it here for a reason, because it's also the first word in the next verse. Biotikos. And I have here, see Luke 21, 34. I'll read it to you. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life and that the day would come upon you suddenly like a trap. So there in Luke 21, again, there's a comparison between the cares of this life, which, honestly, for every one of us, become overwhelming. Absolutely. It's so easy for things that are weighing on my mind and causing me to be anxious that I know I can't change that I wish I could change, that I would do anything to change, but it's beyond me, that those things would weigh on me and obscure the importance of the promises of God, the body of Christ, the family of God, and the eternal, the cares of life, the biotikos. So glorified saints will have higher status than whatever angels are spoken of here. And so that should tell us what? That we can solve basic problems that are within our domain. You know what really is bad about current bad theology that's out there? People claiming they can go into the heavens and interact with the angels 
or even rule over the angels now. That is wrong, it's abusive, and it's harming the body of Christ, any who teach that. There are even courses that are offered where you can learn how to access the heavenly realms or to rule over angels now. Dr. Fee has called that over-realized eschatology, things like that. No, God manages his universe very well. And one thing a manager is not going to do is take people who can't see the spirit world, don't know everything going on in the spirit world, have a hard time dealing with the physical world we're really in, using reason and our five senses, and put us in charge of what we can't see and we don't know. How would, be, how would that be a way of managing things? No one would do that. It would be like taking little kids and putting them in charge of making sure the car is serviced and driven nicely when, they, when they, all they can do is a little play car. God isn't going to do that. So don't listen to the false teachers who tell you they go to heaven and they're going to tell the angels what to do. No, it's false. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Probably about the apostles, but it shows that there's a different role later. Um, let me cite some other scholars, Camp and Rosner. The Corinthians' shame is all the worse when it is recognized that they will participate in judging matters of cosmic proportions. And in this light, the Corinthian dispute seems mundane and small. Judging everyday affairs should be no problem for those destined for such high office and responsibility, unquote. End quote. Now let's go to uh, what the scholars for the last 2,000 years have seen as the key problem. There is a real issue, and it's not because of different manuscripts, but a, a reading of a word that everybody agrees is there. The reading has to do with the word for um, to judge. It's either um, a imperative or indicative. So today, I suppose when you came to church, you didn't think you were going to get a lesson in Greek grammar. And I would avoid that if I could, but I couldn't because it's even the best scholars that I have have a different way of looking at it. But it doesn't change the ultimate issue, okay? So here is the issue. I decided I'm just going to lay it out. I have some color coding there, and I'll explain it the best I can. First, let me give you the key issue, and then I thought of an analogy the other day when I woke up at 4 in the morning. By the way, 4 in the morning means I really slept well. So I'm, I'm thinking about this. How am I going to teach this? How are we going to understand this? And I woke up and I thought of something that I hope works. But here, <clears throat> either this word 
for um, appoint as judges, kathizo is the Greek word, and it's in what looks to me to be an imperative, but it turns out in its conjugation, the imperative and the indicative are exactly the same. So the context has to tell you if it's indicative or imperative. What's that mean? Indicative means asserted as true by the author. Imperative means do this. It's like an exclamation. This is the way it is. So which is it? Why would they think it's one way rather than the other? Well, because of the context, and often it's the last word in the Greek, so why would the imperative be last? Generally, you say, beware, imperative. It's the first thing you say. Let me sort it out. Here's my illustration. I was thinking of the English word read. Read, R-E-A-D. And as a verb, it's spelled exactly the same. Let's say I'm thinking of something that happened in a class that really helped me. It was Dr. Versa, but read the text. Okay, so someone comes across a verse, we're reading it in class, doesn't like it. Dr. Versa looks down and says, read the text. That's imperative, right? Read the text. Read the text. Okay. It means what it says. Now, how could you use that? Now, that's an imperative. How could you use read as an indicative and come up with something like this where you'd end up with a question mark if it was ironic, or ironic rhetorical question? Let me read the text in that sense. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Question mark. Now, there would be the indicative, only an ironic question. Here's another way to say the same thing. So the professor says, read the text, imperative. Here's another way to say the same thing and, and come at it differently. You could say it this way. Is that how you read the text? When, when the text obviously doesn't say that. Is that how you read? So there you have the word read, R-E-A-D. In one case, imperative, read the text. You might get it right. Or is that how you read? Ironic question mark. Oh, maybe I should think it again. I don't know if that helps, but I, I thought of it at four in the morning, so it might help you. I don't know. Or it may be really silly. You, you be the judge of that. But read is read. The context helps us. So the Greek is exactly the same. So that case, if you have an imperative, it says the NIV has it here. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. So one is asking the question, are you taking these trivial matters and going before secular judges they have no standing in the church. So that, that would give you that reading with the question mark. If you take it the other way, if you have disputes about trivial matters, now you have the imperative, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. Now, before uh, I called, I happened to be able to talk to Eric before the surgery, and I talked this over with him. We had a great time talking our whatever nerdy Greek 
as we went through this. And most people early in church history thought, took it as an imperative, and now the question mark prevails. But I think there's something to be said for the imperative based on the bigger thing. What's going on in that church? Who is it that tends in any group to avail themselves of expensive legal systems? The wealthy. Poor people, oh, well, I guess I got a problem. I'll have to live with it. Now, that's, now that's an overstatement, but it's typical, at least here. All right, so the guy who's got something that somebody mistreated him probably can't afford a lawyer. But what if it's this way? That's what's happening here. I'm looking at the NIV. And Paul is saying, you have disrespect for ordinary people in your congregation whom God saved. Many of those have wisdom. And since you folks with status would prefer to go to the secular because you probably have patronage or somebody you know, why don't you take somebody, how would we say it in English, who has no pony in the race? How do you say, you know, dog in the fight? That's probably not a good way to say it. In other words, they have nothing to lose. They don't have status anyhow. So take an ordinary Christian. I love being an ordinary Christian. You're part of the church. You do have wisdom. Let them adjudicate it. Does that make sense? I hope so. I spent hours and hours and hours on this because I know people will ask questions. Let me cite a couple scholars here. In light of 129, where it says that no one should boast before the Lord, it says this, um, uh, Camp and Rosner, in light of 129, no one would have been offended they're despised only in the world's eyes, as 129 makes clear. In effect, Paul says, don't use the somebodies in the world. You will judge the world one day. Therefore, even the nobodies in the church would be better than they. And I read that and I thought, that I can relate to that. that I can relate to that. I'd rather put myself in the hands of the nobodies in the church because the nobodies are going to be somebodies in the eschaton, in the age. Dr. Garland says this, he's not trivializing the pagan courts as having no standing within the church because of their antithetical values. Now, that's the typical, and you could say that. Now, here's why I would... Wonder about that. Paul appealed to secular courts many times in the jurisdiction they had. He appealed to his Roman citizenship. He appealed to Caesar. He did not. In fact, Luke Acts gives a higher uh, sense of propriety to some of the civil courts than he does how the religious people handled things. So um, that's why he would make that statement. Since he affirms their authority in criminal matters, Romans 13, 1 through 5. Instead, he reminds them of the world's disdain for Christians. 
which was particularly evident among the unjust, 6-1, the very ones before whom they have made their legal appeals to set up ostracized, lowly Christians as judges in disagreements would testify, says Garland, to the individual worth of all Christians and the competence of all Christians, regardless of their social status, to arbitrate disputes, uh, to arbitrate disputes. It would testify to the gospel's effective reversal of the world's values, unquote. Now, I'm not disparaging those who would read it as a rhetorical question, as Dr. Fee does, because I cite him often. But I thought maybe the second way, as an imperative, was a better reading. The text is the same either way. What do we learn from this? I, I, I got to admit, I have a heart for the simple, basic people of the world. At one point, I was told, you really should go to seminary. There were some problems going on in the congregation I was part of. And I was told, you need to go to seminary. Get out of being pastor and elder. Go to seminary. I didn't really want to. And my dad, the farmer, was in town. And I talked to my dad and I said, they want me to go to seminary. And that's going to take me years. I can only do one at a time. I still have to deal with life. It's going to take me six or seven, it took more than that, years. By the time I get out, I'll be 48, I told my dad. Farmer dad. Well, six years from now, you'll be 48 if you don't go to seminary. (laughs) I went. Who can argue? It's just basic, and it turns out now, looking back at God's providence, that gave me the ability to teach and to write. And to, at that time, they had some great teachers there, and I'm honored to have sat under them. God can use anybody, any one of us. And this isn't disparaging anybody rich either. The glorious thing about the church I mean, as defined in the Bible, is it doesn't matter. We can be this way, that way, from this trade, that trade, wealthy, poor, pay your bills, can't pay your bills, single, married, have kids, don't have kids. Whoever you are, if your sins are forgiven, you're part of the family of God, you're gifted, and we need you. I need you. You need one another. If you're young, you're old, whatever we may be. That's what we're learning in 1 Corinthians. So well, let me, another thing, by the way, why would an imperative be the last thing in the Greek? Because the first thing is biotikos, that word that was the last word in the previous sentence. Biotikos. So I believe that makes that emphatic. Biotikos, and it says it again, biotikos, trivial things of this life, and then it ends with the imperative. So that's the best reading I can give it without disparaging those who see it otherwise as a rhetorical question. Either way, you get the same point. Better to be wrong, Paul will say. Now let's go to verses 5 and 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 5 and 6. Oh, by the way, that color coding, I didn't get to that, did I? 
Can we go back one? Such cases corresponds to the word for biotikos, trivial, um, and then lay them before kathizo, that's our word here that we're looking at, and then those who have no standing is the one that's highlighted there in purple. And so those who have no standing would either be the secular judges, they don't have any standing in the church, or the people that we would tend to trivialize because, uh, as in Corinth, they saw people that way and they shouldn't have. The hand says to the head, I, or, I have no, or the foot, I have no need of you. Somebody we might think is not important, that shouldn't be. So either way, that's what the color coding does there. 1 Corinthians 6, 5 and 6. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. So there it is, laid right out there. And shame in the world that they lived in, both in Corinth and in Judaism. Shame was to be avoided at all costs. They lived in an honor-shame world. Honor is what everyone wanted. Shame is what everyone wanted to avoid. And whatever your status in any other regard, as far as how young, how uh, talented, or what all, shame is the worst thing. Honor is the best thing. And so when Paul says to them, I say this to your shame, using a word that's only used a few times in the New Testament, that's designed to get their attention. Shame. How dare you? Shame. It's also used, the same word for shame, only used a few times, used in 1 Corinthians 15, 34. I'll read that to you. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Same word. Rather unusual one, but it's the same one. So twice it's spoken to the Corinthian church. I say this to your shame. Now, we might look at it and say, yeah, who cares? As long as I win, I don't care if they think I'm shameful. That's how... A contemporary American may look at it. That's not how they saw it. They did not want shame. That's what makes the story of the prodigal son, the parable, so powerful of a gospel message. That the father shamed himself by running in an undignified manner to bring a shameful, rebellious prodigal and bring him in and honor him. That story is just one of the most magnificent parables in the whole Bible. And it says that he bore the shame so we could have future honor. And when we start fighting about who gets the honor now, that shows a lack of understanding of the amount of shame that he bore, endured the shame, our Lord Jesus, so we could be honored sons and daughters of the king. 
And that, if we get that part right, the rest of this, however we interpret it, will come in a way that will benefit us and our families, in our service to the Lord, in our gospel preaching, and how we view life. It's very difficult. And as I've said many times, living in Christendom triples and quadruples the difficulty because we can't tell what's the church and what's the world. We tend to think everything must be the church. It isn't. We think everything that looks like a church must be a church. Not necessarily. So their actions show a lack of concern for God's promises or the body of Christ. True honor comes, it's on the slide here, uh, it's my composition, true honor comes from being part of God's family, not from getting our way, not from winning. I won, you lose, I'm honored. Um, But when we're in the family of God, the point isn't to shame another brother or sister in Christ, it's to help each one of us serve and know the Lord and know that he will honor all those who have trusted in him. So here's an irony here. They thought they were wise. That's one of their claims. Sophia was wisdom, but they act as if they have no wisdom at all. 1 Corinthians 3.18, is a review. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so he might become wise. What does that mean? Believe on Jesus Christ. Believe in the crucified Jewish Messiah, which is an offense to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. The word for settle a dispute, diakrino, would mean to consider accurately and make a distinction. This has to happen in families, congregations, anything where people interact with one another. Within the church, the settlement should be what is God's wisdom and how can we go forward and bring honor to God and to the gospel and not make everything worse. Moses talked about that. I won't cite that right now, but jot down Deuteronomy 1, 16 and 17. The Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament has that same word, diakrino. Now, by the way, in church history, everything turns into a program and an institution. So some people read this and say, I know what we'll do. We'll get a denominational court of appeals. And we'll take somebody and give them the title of reconciliation facilitator. And when different people start fighting in our denomination, they got to go to binding arbitration. So we set up our own court of appeals. I can see why someone would do that. But that's not the point. The point is the family right here. We're the family of God. And I don't think we wish ill on any one of the other brothers or sisters. Because we love one another. 
Doesn't matter where we came from. Doesn't matter who has status. It matters that we have integrity and love and willingness even to be wronged if that's what it would mean to not harm somebody else. Pat Camp and Rosner said this. It's not not that he is calling for a permanent court to be set up in the church. Instead, he calls for constructive intervention to save a situation which threatened the church's unity and reputation. I agree with that. Only one point, as we're running out of time. We must reject status rivalry because God has great graciously made us his people, which is the greatest honor. This is the greatest honor. I love some of the old gospel. Thank you, music ministry. Um, we had a gospel quartet sing last week. I love that. Reminds me of the earliest days of my Christian life. I went to church in Old Assemblies of God Church in Ames, Iowa, when I was there as a brand new Christian. And Reverend Hilton Griswold, former piano player for the Blackwood Quartet, and he could sing all four parts and play the piano. Every Sunday night, 7.30, show up to church. He'd sit there and watch the clock. As soon as it was 7.30, when the rolls called up yonder, old song. Oh, some people say, oh, come on. Can we have something more sophisticated? No, I don't need, we can have a lot of different kinds of music. We can go from Handel's Messiah to basic home in heaven. Let's not get so sophisticated that home in heaven is beneath us. Right? And so I'm glad to hear the basic promises and gloriously done Handel's Messiah if you have a big enough place to do that. 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31. Look at this. By his doing, it's the review, by his doing you are in Christ, Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. How can it be that we could boast in the Lord? Well, to boast in the Lord, you need to know the Lord. To know the Lord, you need to believe the gospel. And believing the gospel means believing in Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did, why we need him, and what he expects of us. Who he is, is he is the very creator of the universe, eternal God, who existed from all from before all time, before the universe came into existence. This one, God the Son, we believe in a trinity, God the Son, born of a virgin, came into our world, lived a sinless life, did many mighty deeds, some of which, many of which are designed to show his uniqueness, his power and his authority. God the Son. And he predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. He died for sins, shed his blood to avert God's wrath against sin. He predicted his resurrection, and he was bodily raised from the dead. 
and appeared to many witnesses. On the third day, bodily raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven before many witnesses. His shed blood paid the penalty for sins. Those who believe in him are forgiven. He expects us to repent. Don't live for the world. Don't live for pleasure. Don't live for the things of the world or pride or whatever. Live for Christ. Turn to him and receive forgiveness of sins. Trust him alone. So those who trust in him, we give him the glory. It's not because we're smarter than everybody else. It's because God is merciful. I had already decided I had enough of this religious stuff, and I wasn't going to do anything but run away. But God had a different idea. Think about Mary in the Bible. Let me read Luke 1, 51 through 53. Here's the gospel. Here's someone who boasted in the Lord. Mary, here's what it says. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts, in the thoughts of their hearts. Luke 152 has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. That's Luke 1, 51 to 53. That's not just some nice thing you say over and over again, or people have just really abused the biblical doctrine of Mary, the Virgin Mary is the mother, Jesus. But what it does say is reversal. She didn't consider herself anything, but God had brought great things. One last verse I'll quickly read. This is where this comes from. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Thus said the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. That's Yahweh, who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things the Lord says I delight the Lord delights in the basic things that the world could care less about and it's relational it's not based on who's the greatest it's relational so if you know the Lord that is glorious you can join Mary and say, God has done mighty things. You can judge, join the saints and the psalmists and say, God has done mighty things. If you don't know the Lord today, believe on him, trust in him alone, be part of the family of God. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Help us to take to heart everything you've said. Lord, we admit, I admit that this is hard and difficult because our tendencies are so different from what you've called us to be. But we know you have grace to change us from the inside out. May we know that knowing you is what 
makes everything different and that we don't have to compare ourselves to someone else. And I pray, Lord, that even today, some would come to know you who don't know you. Thank you, Lord. We give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.